Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, please stand to hear the word of God as we, Lord willing, complete our studies through the Gospel of Luke for the present time. We are in Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 36. This is the word of God. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, And said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Thus far the word of the Lord. May he bless it to us all. He may be seated. Resurrection, it's at the very heart of our Christian faith. It is at the heart of God's self-revelation of who he is as the God who has revealed himself in and as the man, Jesus the Christ. Similarly, resurrection is at the heart of our understanding of who we are and of the nature and the meaning and the purpose of reality and of our purpose, our personal existence. So, resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, which has taken place, and our own resurrection, which is to come, is both basic and central and essential to our faith, what you might call our everyday Christianity. And at one and the same time, it is most gloriously and incomparably profound, shining out from the resurrected one, Jesus, the God-man, so that we may by its light see clearly and may delight in all that God has for us in Christ. 
So it is so basic and so simple that it's, it's the expression of our everyday Christianity. And at the same time, it is of unfathomable richness and glory and majesty and depth and breadth. Here in the climax and apex of Luke's gospel, we have his most detailed account of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to his disciples. In this account, Luke's focus is on Jesus himself, quite naturally, for us to behold through the eyes of those who saw and heard and touched Jesus. Yet at the same time, Luke makes it very clear that the disciples had a very hard time believing and the glorious reality that they were perceiving by the sight of their own eyes, by the hearing of their own ears, and by the touching with their own hands. So verse 36 tells us while the disciples were still talking to the two disciples who had rushed back to Jerusalem from Emmaus to tell the disciples that they had seen Jesus, Jesus himself came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. They, they actually saw Jesus and heard him speak to them, but they were freaked out. They thought they were seeing a ghost. In response, Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. See. For his spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And then he showed them his hands and his feet. Even then, they still disbelieved, we're told, for joy and for the marvel of all of it. And so he asked them for something to eat, another tangible distribution another tan- tangible demonstration that he, he really is there and he really is in a flesh and blood body. And so he, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now it's interesting. It's interesting that just as when Jesus broke bread with the two disciples in Emmaus that he was revealed to them, Here also he reveals himself to the gathered disciples by eating in their presence. More reflections on that in a little little bit. It is clear that only gradually, slowly, did the disciples accept the reports of their own eyes and ears and hands that Jesus really was alive and present with them. This runs utterly counter to the mythical view of modern Bible critics that people back then, being unscientific, superstitious people, were easy to mislead or very easily misled themselves into believing what they so very much wanted to believe, that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then, according to the myth, supposedly modern, educated, secular, sophisticated people are much better and much smarter, and no better than to believe such things. But consider this, brothers and sisters. Ancient people, I think, were much more acquainted with death and with corpses than we modern people are. In our times, when someone dies, a loved one or a friend or 
or a neighbor, we have specialized services that step in immediately and take care of everything that needs to be done. But in those days, people had to take care of all that themselves. For example, we saw in Luke chapter 23, verse 53, that Joseph of Arimathea went to Pontius Pilate and requested the body of Jesus. He received permission, and then he had to go take Jesus' body down from the cross himself, which that would be a pretty that'd be a pretty big task, actually. And then he had to transport the body of Jesus to his tomb and then place the body of Jesus in it. By that time it was late in the day. And it was the preparation for the Sabbath, so he had to just leave, seal the tomb. And that's why the women came early on the morning of the third day to complete preparing the body of Jesus for burial. The point is that people in those days were far more used to dealing with death and with dead bodies, corpses, in an up-close fashion, far more than anyone today except for morticians. So if anyone would have a hard time believing that a person was raised from the dead, it would be far more likely somebody in those times than for a modern person because they all knew about the details of death far more in terms of personal acquaintance and dealing with death and with corpses than any of us. And they also knew something else. They were all too familiar with the gruesome and gory details of death by crucifixion. So they probably would be likely to be more skeptical about a resurrection, harder to convince than even a modern person. Luke doesn't shrink back, nor do any of the other gospel writers, from giving an honest depiction of the initial unbelief of the disciples and what they only very slowly and gradually came to accept and believe that Jesus really was alive again from the dead. But then... Finally, having accepted that Jesus really was alive from the dead, the disciples noted that Jesus' body, after his resur- that is his resurrected body, was both like his pre-crucifixion body, and it was also very different. It was like it in that it was a physical flesh and blood, flesh and bone body and that he was able to eat food. But it was also very, very different. After his resurrection, Jesus was able to vanish from the side of the disciples at Emmaus after he made himself known to them in the breaking of bread. He was also able to enter a room that was all locked up tight where his disciples were to be with them. And no doubt those very factors were part of the reason why Jesus' disciples hesitated to believe what they saw and heard and touched. He was the same Jesus whom they intimately knew, and yet he was different. 
Now, the church has continued to reflect on the nature of Jesus' resurrection body down through the ages, as well as on the meaning of the resurrection, as we saw last Lord's Day. Let me give you one, just one example of the church's reflection on the nature of Jesus' resurrection body. We know that Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, but poor Lazarus eventually died again. But Jesus was raised in a body that was immortal and incorruptible, never to die again, but to live forever. That is to say that Jesus' body was a body of a new order or kind that is not subject to the effects of sin and death or the disruption of the created order that came about because of sin. Jesus' resurrection body instead was a demonstration that God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, has brought about the restoration of the original order that existed prior to sin. In other words, Jesus' resurrection was not an anomaly. It was not an interruption in the order and structure of the world. It was not an interruption of natural law. Instead, it was a restoration of the order and structure that God had placed in his creation from the beginning that had been disrupted by the fall. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus demonstrated the power of God to restore creation to its pre-fall condition. But it's even better than that. The church, as it is reflected upon the nature of Jesus' resurrection body, also has recognized this, that while in the original creation order before the fall, Adam's body was perfect, it was sin-free and death-free, but it was mutable. It was able to be corrupted by sin and death. But Jesus' resurrected body was different. It was not only perfect like Adam's body before the fall into sin. Jesus' resurrected body was glorified. That is, it was immutable, incorruptible, immortal. So Jesus' resurrection restores the original created order, but it does more. It brings the original created order to glorification so that it is beyond mutability and corruption and mortality. It is everlastingly, gloriously living and perfect. Michael Reeves makes this comment, quote, It was indeed a wondrous new beginning, like a new Eden, reestablishing all that God had once declared good. A human being, yes, God, walked in the garden, ruler over all things, in perfect harmony with God. Only now there would be no threat of death, no danger of a serpent to wreck it all. Death had been swallowed up in victory. The serpent crushed the very creation 
would now wait in eager expectation, longing to feel the full effects of his life as it had so long endured the fallout of Adam's curse. For the resurrection of the firstborn was the guarantee that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the sons of God, as it says in Colossians 1.18 and Romans 8.21. And that's from his book, Rejoicing in Christ, page 65. This wonderfully good news of the resurrection of Jesus is for us. For God tells us in Scripture that as Jesus is, we all shall be. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 57. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come the pass, the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far, Paul see that because of Jesus' substitutionary atoning death for us on the cross, and we sang about that in his robes for mine, I'm still not yet able to successfully complete singing that song without getting to the point where I just choke, you know. But as we celebrated in the singing of that song to God, because of Jesus' substitutionary atoning death for us on the cross, We are forgiven and cleansed and given eternal life through union by the Spirit with the resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus. Because Jesus lives forever in resurrection glory, we shall live with him and in him forever in resurrection glory. And moreover, because the first Adam was the head over the original creation, the original heavens and earth, the resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus, the last Adam, is the head over a new creation, a new resurrected and glorified heavens and earth. And so we shall live with Jesus Christ in the new creation, the new heavens and new earth forever in the communion of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all who have been saved by Jesus. That's what we have to look forward to and glory. But meanwhile, 
through union with Christ by the Holy Spirit, we begin living that new resurrection life right here and now in this old creation. That life, that life in Christ, is manifested first of all in His body, the church, that glorious body of Christ of which we are all individually living members together. And then it's manifested, that resurrection life of Christ, as we live it out in our families, and then in our callings and vocations, and in everything we do in all areas of life and activity in this world. We have the glorious calling of manifesting the glory of the resurrected, glorified Christ in our lives right here and now. Indeed, indeed, this is what the whole story of Scripture is all about as it points us to Christ and is fulfilled by Christ. It all begins in the opening chapters of Genesis, points to Christ and the glory of Christ as the fulfillment of all that God has planned out and revealed to us in Scripture. Just as Jesus had done with the disciples on the road to Emmaus that we looked at last Lord's Day, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself, Luke 24, 27. So now he does the same thing with his gathered disciples. He said to them in verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That whole story of Scripture, it was all about Jesus. And Jesus says, This is what I said to you while I was still with you. Everything written about me in the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see, as I pointed out last Lord's Day, it was the major thrust of the sermon. So again, I can't emphasize enough that Christ here teaches us how to interpret all the scriptures. They all point to him and are all fulfilled by him. And then they are fulfilled by him in us his body, the church, and through the mission of the church, they are fulfilled in all the world, in all peoples, and in all cultures and societies. That is to say that Jesus himself is the key to understanding Scripture. Look for Jesus in Scripture, and you will rightly interpret it, but then also understand we are united to him as members of his body. So that what is as true of the head in his glorified humanity is manifested as true and real in his body as well, as he is 
so we shall be, and that life begins here and now in this life and in this world. This is how Christ brings new life to all the dying nations and peoples of the world. He saves people, and He saves peoples. He saves us and all our relationships, our marriages, our families, our communities, nations, and in all of our activities that take place within all of our relationships. This is why we are called evangelicals. We preach Christ and His saving work. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And we call, this is the evangel, the good news, we call people and peoples to repentance for the forgiveness of sins, to receive God's unconditional free grace in Christ and eternal life in Him. And Jesus gives us His Spirit to empower and enable us. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon the body of Christ on the day of Pentecost. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, brothers and sisters, the grand conclusion of Luke's gospel is not a grand finale, but a glorious new beginning. Jesus ascended into heaven and was enthroned at the right hand of the Father as Lord and King over all the nations, over all the peoples, and to pour out the Holy Spirit upon his body on earth to equip and empower us to minister to and disciple the nations. So the glorious reality is that the resurrected Jesus is our King and that he is reigning. That is a factual reality. That is a factual certainty just as surely as is the factual certainty of Jesus' death and resurrection. Just as surely as Jesus died and rose again, so certainly he has ascended and has been enthroned at the right hand of the Father as Lord and King over all. And just as we are to live in the certainty of Jesus' death for our sins and of his resurrection victory over sin and Satan and death, so we are to live in the certainty that he has ascended and that he is reigning as king and that he has given us the Holy Spirit. And there's this. You remember how Jesus revealed himself to the disciples at Emmaus in the breaking of bread and how Jesus again manifested himself as resurrected in the presence of his disciples by eating in their presence. So too, each Lord's day, the Lord breaks bread with us. He is the host at the Lord's Supper that we'll be partaking of in just a few moments.
He reveals and manifests himself to us anew each Lord's Day and the breaking of bread. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, so let us in our times not throw up our hands in exasperation, but rather let us lift up our hands in exaltation of and worship of our risen and ascended and exalted and reigning Lord and King Jesus. Thus far the application of the word of the Lord.